actually speaking, about um, 60% percent of y'all weren't. Uh, it's kind of how church goes these days. Uh, I want to reintroduce you to this series that we started last week as we finish up the Sermon on the Mount, start a new series <coughs> on friendship. And so we have for centuries as Christians recited the Apostles' Creed, and one of the key components of the creed is the statement, um, I believe in the communion of the saints. And we said last week that um, we are created for friendship and from friendship, and that's one of the things the creed is recognizing there, is that to be fully alive is to uh, walk in relationships with others. And yet our actual lived experience tells us something different, that we don't really believe in, at least not at any functional level, this communion between saints. And so the question we, we kind of asked last week is like, why are we doing a series, just naming this like awkward, weird reality, why are we doing a series on something so basic and trivial and maybe fundamental and foundational as friendship? And we said that the reason that we're doing a series on friendship is because we are experiencing a pervasive and profound loneliness and sense of isolation. Just globally, <coughs> excuse me, globally, this has been called a, a, a mental health crisis. I think in, uh, we said last week that Great Britain just appointed the first minister of loneliness. Like the government is getting involved in this, trying to unroll uh, pro- roll out programs to help uh, subsidize this crisis. And, and more than that, I think all of us kind of know just on a general level, there's just this gnawing, kind of nagging feeling of loneliness. And as I talked to some people after the sermon last week, um, I think it really hit home and registered like you just how often we push down our loneliness and we don't talk about it and we've learned to kind of settle into just a low-grade sense of isolation and anxiety and loneliness in terms of our relationships with, with other people. I know for me, in a lot of ways, preaching this, this series has been the culmination of just seven years of learning uh, these lessons in my own life. And, and so this is profoundly personal for me. Uh, we moved here, my wife and I, my four children, uh, all under the ages of five Seven and a half years ago, I know some of you are like, what is wrong with you? Uh, I'm not sure. Um, we may be mentally ill, but we moved here and we uh, kind of show up and again, imagine like what it's like to be a Southerner showing up with a Southern accent in what we in the South call the North, just anything north of the Ohio River. So I show up with my four kids, which in the city makes you a freak already. Um, you're somewhat of a Bigfoot. You have a Southern accent. You have all this Kentucky gear, right? So like there's just loneliness that's right in front of you if that's your stories. I, I think I shared in one of the services last week, uh, we lived on the north side and going to Kroger, my wife came out one time and just said, hey, uh, somebody looked at me today. And like that may not seem like a big deal but when you're new to a city and somebody establishes eye contact and looks at you and, and strikes up conversation. She came out and I said, well, did you get her phone number? And she's like, what are you talking about? That would be super weird. And I was like, get back in there and get her phone number. We need friends. And and so we had, we had left, and there's a long story behind this, but we had basically been kind of exiled from our former community of friends, a spiritual community of a church and some relationships that we had valued for decades. And um, through a series of circumstances, found ourselves um, outside of those relationships. And so moving to Indy, being alone, having nothing behind us, nothing around us, and it seemed like nothing in front of us. And I don't know if you've been in that place, but it's a it's a hard spot to be in, and so really looking in and digging into this thing about friendship has been really important for us because we have just felt over and over and over again. We live, again, in a very transient community where people are moving. We'll talk about that in a second, and so I feel like we've been confronted with multiple layers 
of loneliness where like we thought we knew loneliness and then it got deeper and we knew that loneliness and then it got deeper and we knew that loneliness and we had friends move away and friends who betrayed us and, and different things that have happened and we're just kind of left going, well, maybe this is just life in the city. Maybe this is just the best that it can be. And we've had those conversations, we've wept. You know, I remember specifically sitting around a pool, the last place you're supposed to be crying, in South Florida about five years ago with my wife. And just looking at our kids and, and like literally weeping and praying together saying, we feel alone. Our kids are alone. Is this the rest of our life? Genesis 2, 18, we looked at last week. God says, God says, it's not good for man to be alone. One of the things that we said last week is this is not an admission of a hidden design flaw, as if God is a product designer and he made a mistake and he's worked out the bugs and now he's ready to roll out humanity 2.0. This is not an admission of a hidden design flaw. It is the revelation of a hidden design feature. Adam is in the garden with God in perfect fellowship and friendship with God, and yet God still says it's not good for mankind to be on his own, on her own, on their own. God names this reality of loneliness, and he invites Adam, and he invites us <clears throat> to see that loneliness is supposed to awaken something deep inside of us. It's supposed to awaken a hunger for relationship and intimacy, both with God and with other people. It is an invitation, listen to this, it is an invitation to something beautiful about your humanity and about my humanity. It is not an indictment of something that's broken in us. And the way you see that will change and transform the way you handle and learn to deal with uh, and be honest about your loneliness. If it's an indictment of something broken, that means God has set us up in an impossible position, almost if, as if God hates us. Why would God create us with a fundamental deficiency? But the story of the Bible is that this is actually an invitation to see something beautiful, that we were created for relationships. It's what we call spiritual friendship, the pursuit of friendship with God in the context of friendship with other people. Last week I threw up that slide, and when we just said these two realities are interdependent, we tend to see them as different, like two circles that don't overlap, my relationship with other people and my relationship with God. Some of us uh, feel like we're pretty good in our relationship with God, but we don't really have friends with other people, so we go to church and we're in a crowd of people, and yet we still feel alone. Some of us feel like we're pretty good at friendship with other people, but then we get burned out, and we're not so great at friendship with God. And what we said is the Bible invites us to see that we've been created from friendship for friendship. From friendship and for friendship. We need friendship with God in order to learn to be friends with other people, but we also need to be friends with other people to learn to be better friends with God. They're interdependent with one another, and we can't have one without the other to seek friendship with another is to seek friendship with God. And to seek friendship with God should lead us to seek friends, friendship with other people. And so the reason we're preaching this series is that we are kind of acknowledging as a church that we are not very good at making and sustaining authentic friendship, spiritual friendship, right? Can we just be honest about that? We're not very good at it. We think we are, and yet we settle for shallow uh, partnerships of convenience or affinity or proximity. Or mutual advantage. And we live in a cultural moment that undermines our efforts at every turn. So our goal in this series is to recover a vision for spiritual friendship, 
right? Uh, the skills that are required to be a good friend, to become a good friend, and then the rhythms that enable spiritual friendship to flourish. And so we're going to be looking this week at what it looks like to become uh, uh, the kind of person that's capable of being a spiritual friend. Uh, we're going to look at the story of David uh, and Jonathan coming up here in a few weeks. We're going to be looking at the book of Proverbs a lot uh, through this series, talking about how to choose and, and sustain uh, good friendships. We're going to be looking at friendships both inside the context of the church and then outside in the world. Uh, and then lastly, I'm really excited about looking at friendship through different seasons of life. Um, talking through the book of Ecclesiastes together. So that's kind of our path. Let me just share this quote. I had all of this prepared in a really nice presentation for you, uh, and unfortunately our PowerPoint crashed. Uh, I just, I love technology, and so uh, we're working to get that put back up, and if we can, we will, but I'll just read these to you. Paul Waddell, who has a great book on friendship called Becoming Friends, one of my favorite resources for this series. I would highly commend it if you're interested in the topic of Christian friendship. Here's what he says. If the church is faithful to its identity, as the friends of God, it should be a befriending community that not only welcomes all who come to it, but also offers them a place where the grammar of intimacy and friendship can be learned. Moreover, if authentic friendship is an endangered species in our society, and we are arguing that it is, then an urgent ministry of the church today may be to help create a supportive environment where true friendship and rich intimacy can be witnessed embodied and experienced. So this is the question that we're after as a community. What would it look like for us to cultivate the kind of rich soil that could lead us to become, I love that language, a community of the friends of God, a community of spiritual friends. So with that intro, let me read our text. If you have a Bible, turn to Proverbs, and we're going to be flipping all through the book of Proverbs, but the key verse for us today is going to be one simple verse out of the book of Proverbs, and I would argue that Proverbs, more than any book in the Bible, is anxious for us to have a vision for friendship. It talks about friendship a lot. Proverbs 18, so right in the middle of your Bible, or if you have a device, you can turn there, 1824, the last verse of chapter 18. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Man of many companions may come to ruin, or or the language there is literally, is about to be shattered. But there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. So you see the contrast, this juxtaposition in this passage. In, In the Proverbs and wisdom literature, you have these couplets that are placed together, and the first half presents a vision, and and typically then you'll have the second half that presents a contrast. So there's contrast here between the kind of friend who sticks closer than a brother, which I think we would argue is the kind of friendship we're aiming for, right? The deep, authentic, spiritual friendship, and the man or the person of many companions who comes to ruin, who's about to be shattered. So let's look first at this this first half of the verse, uh, a person of many companions uh, may come to ruin, will probably come to ruin, is likely to come to ruin. And, and I want to talk about what makes friendship hard, what's in some ways always made friendship hard, but in particular, in particular, in our cultural moment, what makes friendship hard. There are dynamics that are at work around us and inside of us that make it hard for us. And here's what I want you to do. Um, I'm distilling down for you 
about 500 years and really thousands of years of philosophy, uh, post-enlightenment, like literature, psychology, sociology, religious studies. I'm going to try to pull this together into like three statements, okay? So I I don't want you to get overwhelmed by this this kind of analysis, but I think it's helpful for us to, to just be aware of the ways that we're being shaped and formed, uh, in, in our moment that we live in, right? Because it's easy just to kind of be uh, on autopilot and just to see the benefits of uh, this kind of like Western, uh, you know, modern society, late modern society that we live in. We experience a lot of benefits, but there are a lot of drawbacks, right? There are shadow sides to every light, right? And there is a shadow side that has been cast um, Uh, really coming out of the Enlightenment a couple centuries ago that has reached a fever pitch now. And so I want to draw attention to some of those things, and I want to look at them, but I just want you to maybe stop um, and and maybe just note one or two of these. Don't feel like you have to jot all these down, but I want you just to maybe name some of the ways that you are being shaped by these forces, maybe unwittingly, unconsciously, that you've just kind of assumed that this master narrative that the West is telling us is the way to be human. And to kind of step back from it and say, wow, how am I being shaped by these different forces? And what would it look like for me to be more aware, to walk with more awareness, and how these things might be impacting the feelings of loneliness and isolation and my inability to develop meaningful friendships with other people and with God? Okay, so let me give you a couple different ones. The first category, sociocultural dynamics. And again, these ought to feel very familiar because it's the world in which we live. Sociocultural dynamics, we'll look at church dynamics, and then we'll look at personal dynamics. Sociocultural dynamics, there's lots of things being written now about uh, the time in which we live and, um, and, and what's creating and exacerbating loneliness. Let me just point out a couple things. Mobility, right? Mobility is a huge issue, um, particularly if you're here and you're under the age of, say, like, uh, 37 if you're a millennial, right? Like, uh, there's a lot of movement that's happening. Millennials are twice as likely as their parents to change jobs before 32. The average uh, millennial has four jobs by the time they reach 32. Their parents had two jobs uh, at most by the time they reach 32. So there's lots of movement. Like, the average adult will move about 15 times over the course of their life, 11 to 15 times, give or take. Um, but there's a lot of job change, a lot of freelancing, a lot of things that are happening. Um, sociologist Robert Putnam calls uh, the, the, the downside to mobility, right, this kind of like, I'm going to be here for a year, and then I move somewhere else, I'm going to take this job, and, um, and that. He calls this the, the repotting effect, right? If you think about pulling a plant up by its roots and then trying to repot it, there's a, there's a damage that can happen and take place. And you think about being repotted three or four or five or six times, that mobility has created what one author calls a proximity without real community. So we're close to lots of people. We live in cities where there's a lot of density, but it's a density without any sense of true community or relationship. We move in and we move out, and it impacts our ability to make friends, right? It makes you hesitant because you're like, well, I don't, I mean, like if you're a young mom and you're lonely and uh, your, ta- your margins are thin, right, which is just being a parent, right, and you're, think- you're looking out, scanning the environment, trying to see, we talked about uh, mommy pickup lines, you know, last week about like mom's out and like, oh, I like your stroller. Do you want to go for a walk together? That kind of thing. You're scanning the playground and you're looking for, it's sad. That's where we're at. Like you're scanning the playground um, and, and you're meeting people at church. There's this thing that's happening in you where you're evaluating subconsciously most of the time, is this person even going to be here in two years? Is this relationship worth investing in? And if it's not, you tend to kind of pull back a little bit and not really put your heart out there and be vulnerable. That's the effect of mobility is it just creates uh, this, trans, this hyper-transience that makes us reticent to enter into 
uh, deep relationships. Technology, obviously, is affecting us socioculturally. Sherry Turkle has written a lot about this. Um, her book, Reclaiming Conversation, is fabulous on this stuff. She's an MIT chair and researcher, and, and she, she's spoken quite a bit on this. She says, basically, technology has brought us to this place where we turn to our phones instead of to each other. We, we believe in what she calls the three lies from a benevolent genie, the basic promises of, of smartphones. Um, you'll never have to be alone. Your voice will always be heard, and you can put your attention wherever you want, whenever you want. He says, in reality, the act, our actual experience is that um, our kind of addiction to uh, smartphones and things, although I'm not anti-smartphones, I'm not anti-technology, I, I'm thankful for technology, but again, every light has a shadow. And she said the shadow side of this is actually studies are showing that it's reducing our levels of empathy and connection with other people. Think about the last time you had a, a full conversation with somebody where they didn't check their text message in the middle of the conversation. What happens is you divert your eyes and your attention is distracted and you're not able to be fully present with somebody. Levels of empathy go down because empathy requires that I'm looking at you face to face with my undivided attention. And so she's written on that. It's increased feelings of isolation, anxiety, depression, and there's even links to suicide related to our usage of smartphones. They're always on. They're always distracting us. Freedom is another thing that we see with, with uh, mobility and with affluence and with education. We, we want to maximize our autonomy and limit our commitment to other people, which kind of makes friendship a luxury item. If I have time for it, uh, in the midst of all the busyness of everything that I'm doing, uh, you know, we have FOMO, we're afraid to connect, you know, we, we, it's kind of, this age has been called the age of uh, the, the bailing and, and flaking out, right? Like, I'll, I'll make a commitment and I'll wait till the very last second and then I'll see if I'm actually going to do it if I don't have any better options. That is a real damager to friendship. Uh, and it's not new, by the way. But uh, Hugh Black, who was a Scottish pastor who wrote a book on friendship uh, over a century ago, here's what he says about this, this desire that we have to have freedom and how it impacts relationships. We have few friendships because we are not willing to pay the price of friendship. Most men make friends easily enough, few keep them. They do not give the subject the care, the thought, the trouble it requires and deserves. We want the pleasure of society without the duty. We would like to get the good of our friends without burdening ourselves with any responsibility about keeping them friends. Freedom is a challenge. Consumerism, right? We live in a market economy that has become the dominant cultural narrative of the West, capitalism, and the way that we talk about uh, each other in our relationships. Um, we begin to think of ourselves and think of other people as commodities or products to be traded, to, to be used for our own good. We, instead of loving people and using goods, we tend to love goods and use people, right? That's, that's very common in our day. So even the way we talk about relationships, we talk about them in very economic terms, like we, we talk about investing in our relationships, uh, relationships feel kind of like transactions that can be disposed of when they no longer, the cost-benefit analysis is run and it no longer, the, the benefit no longer outweighs the cost. Um, so consumerism has really damaged uh, some of these things. And then the last thing a lot of people pointed out is just this, uh, this heightened um, idolatry, I guess you'd call it, in our, even in a secular West, uh, of eros or romance. Like Freud said that basically all relationships, Sigmund Freud said all relationships are rooted in uh, sex. I mean, that was kind of like his basic viewpoint. Um, and this idea that true intimacy can only be found in the romantic sexual union of a couple 
has really had a, a strange effect on our moment. And that is, by the way, historically anomalous, right? So what we do is we exalt romantic sexual union between partners, which leads us to focus most exclusively our relationship energy on marriage and family relationships as the most important relationships in the world. And anybody who's single knows that's the reality in which we live. Churches do this. Our society does this. We exalt marriage relationships, sexual relationships, um, which leads to single people being marginalized. It puts a lot of weight on marriages, right? To assume like our vows, this person's going to be my soulmate, my best friend, my only, basically which end up, ends up meaning by the time you're 45, your only friend. And it puts a lot of weight. It's a crushing weight to put on one another, to think that this spouse is going to be for me everything that I need them to be. It's crazy. Stephanie Kuntz, one author, uh, said this about just how weird this is in history. We just think this is normal, but how weird this is just when you look back over the the life of uh, the West. She says, through most of history, it was considered dangerously antisocial to be too emotionally attached to one's spouse because that diluted loyalties to family, neighbors, and society at large. Andrew Sullivan wrote a great essay on this, and he said, the great modern enemy of friendship has turned out to be love. And then uh, Carrie English had a fantastic article. If you're single, I would highly commend this, especially if you have a friend getting married, called A Bridesmaid's Lament. And she just talked about the transition of her best friend into marriage and how there's no real place to like, be honest about how painful of a transition that is. When your friend get mar- gets married, it's all about this new person, and yet you've put all this time into the friendship over a decade, and all of a sudden it's like, this is my best friend, and you're like, whoa. What happened to me, like the friend who's been here for you? And you're, you're, you're always the bridesmaid, never the bride. And it's a, it's a terrible place to be. So that's happening around us. And then some of that stuff just comes into the church, right? Like that becomes part of the landscape of the church. We do that in the church. We have a bias towards family. We treat single people as incomplete. We lift up the family at the expense of single people in all kinds of stages of life. We are consumeristic in the church, right? If we're honest, like, we, we talk about growth. We talk about efficiency. We talk about success. I mean, that's all kind of part of the, the religious architecture of the church. We're busy and mobile and distracted, and, and we value freedom as much as anybody. Um, we, we're very idealistic in the church about relationships. We talk about community, uh, but we want it instantly. We want it to be easy. We want it to be fast, um, I think one of the big realities that I've noticed in the church uh, is that we're so cause-oriented, right? Like, we're so cause-oriented. I think missional churches in particular, like ours, that care about the community, we really care about the cause, and we want to get out and kind of change the world together without stopping to take the time to look at what it, just basic friendship. Like, do I even know these people? Do I care about these people? Or are we just in some mission together to, like, grow a church and build an empire? I mean, that's a real thing in the church, and it can lead to all kinds of distortions um, and make it very difficult for us to just slow down to create space for friendship in the church. And then personally, we have patterns in our lives that have been forged through um, what I'll just call like internal and family scripts, things that are happening inside of us, kind of the internal wiring, um, our own sin and our own suffering and the the families we grew up in that create uh, certain personal dynamics that make it hard for us to be good friends and to pursue real relationships with other people. Two that I'll just note here that a lot of people have pointed out, um, and they're actually in the book of Proverbs, you see them in here. One is uh, because of the way that I was raised, these scripts that have been handed to me and the choices that I've made, things that are happening inside of me, 
Um, we can either fall into one of two ditches when it comes to how we personally relate to others. One is over-detachment, right? Over-detachment. Look at Proverbs 18. Just flip back to the beginning of that chapter. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. So there's some of us that are overly detached. We're very clinical in our relationships. We're very shallow. We value independence. And in a lot of ways, this is the way that we were raised in kind of a cold uh, Cold War era, so to speak, of your, your family of origin. You value privacy. You're very superficial in your relationships. You, you really value, at the end of the day, control. And then you have a hard time surrendering control, which friendship just dances on all those vulnerabilities. Um, there's a lack of playfulness. You can't laugh because to laugh and to joke and to be lighthearted is to give up control, right? And so it manifests itself. So just isolating ourselves. Some of us are just self-isolating people. And we're, we're overly detached, and we, we wonder why everybody else around us, you ever felt like this? Like, you'll usually have in a marriage one person that's like this, and the other one's the other way. One person is like, gosh, you're so needy. What is wrong with you? You, like, you ever felt that way? Some of you are like, man, everyone around me is just so needy. They just want friendship. They want to spend time together. They, 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 they want me to hug them and, like, touch them and, like, laugh with them. And just, that's so weird, you know? You're overly detached, right? And you learn that growing up. Um, the other ditch is obviously the opposite, over-attachment, over-attachment, where we're overly needy. Proverbs 25, 17, let your foot be seldom in your neighbor's house, lest he have his fill of you and hate you. Some of you need to memorize that verse, okay? Too much of a good thing can be a bad thing. You're codependent, not independent. You're possessive in your relationships. You ever found yourself getting mad that one of your friends becomes friends with somebody else because it's going to intrude on your relationship with them? Rather than seeing a relationship as something that's created for like infinite expansion and joy and, and like the more I have of this, I'm always talking to my kids about this. I have four kids and it's like the, nobody wants to do the three thing. They just want to pair off in twos. And I'm like, hey guys, love is something that's created to expand and be inclusive and to invite others in and yet we get so possessive we can be manipulating or suffocating in our friendships with other people those are the kinds of things that prevent us from having relationships with one another so the result of that proverb says whether it's the sociocultural things and i see this as kind of like a venn diagram these things are interacting with each other and overlapping uh, with each other to create uh, the condition of like this extreme loneliness this exaggerated loneliness that we feel so sociocultural things happening, church things happening, and then personal things are all kind of weaving together um, and, 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 and creating the situation that we're in. Here's the result. The man of many companions, going back to our verse there, the man of many companions may come to ruin. The word there is about to be shattered. So the result of these things is scattered relationships, right? Scattered relationships. Which then, the, the, the writer of the Proverbs says, leads to a shattered soul. Scattered relationships lead to a shattered soul. We scatter our energy out among all of these companions. And there's a difference in the word here between companion and a friend. A companion speaks to these kind of scattered, fragmented, polarized, uh, superficial relationships that we have in our world today. So we scatter ourselves out, and we have, you know, thousands of friends on Facebook. We have lots of social media, you know, contacts or whatever. We have lots of business associates. But, like, how many of us have real friends, true, deep friends? 
Hugh Black says this, the commonest mistake is that we spread our intercourse, that's using the old sense of the word, over a mass and have no depth of heart left. We lament that we have no staunch and faithful friend when we have not really expended the love which produces such. We want to reap where we have not sown. It leads to a debilitating loneliness. A debilitating loneliness, a sense of feeling shattered feeling discouraged, feeling fragile in a world that seems to have lost its mind. There's like real psychological, psychobiological effects of this. Judith Shulovitz um, has written quite a bit on this. She has a great essay on loneliness. She says, just as we once knew that infectious disease killed but didn't know what germs spread them, we've known intuitively that loneliness hastens death but haven't been able to explain how. Psychobiologists can now show that loneliness sends misleading hormonal signals, rejiggers the molecules on genes that govern behavior, and wrenches a slew of other systems out of whack. They have proved that long-lasting loneliness not only makes you sick, it can kill you. Emotional isolation is ranked as high a risk factor for mortality as smoking. A partial list of the physical diseases thought to be caused or exacerbated by loneliness would include Alzheimer's, obesity, diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease, neurodegenerative diseases, and even cancer. Tumors can metastasize faster in lonely people. That's just the physiological effects. There's also what Lauren Winter calls the loneliness of the everyday. Just the day in and day out. I don't have anybody to share a bowl of cereal with. I don't have anybody, I don't know if anybody's going to be there to pick me up when I come home from the airport. I feel alone in my everyday existence, even though I'm surrounded by hundreds and thousands of people. Second part of this verse is encouraging. (laughs) It's dark, right? It's hard to be a friend, but we see in the second half, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Friendship is hard, but what does it look like to make friendship possible? Right? To make friendship possible, it is possible that there can be a friend. No matter where you're at in this season of life, no matter what challenges you face growing up, your past is not your future. Your story is not determined. Your destiny is not determined by what's happened to you in the past, but what God is doing right now and what he wants to invite you into in the future. There is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. This word friend here is the word oheb, which means a true friend. And what he's saying is, true friendship is rare, but it's infinitely better than a network of scattered relationships. True friendship is rare, but it is possible. This word stick here is the word in the Bible. It's a rich Hebrew word for cleaves or clings to. It's the same language for covenant relationship in the Bible. And we're going to talk more about that in the life of David and Jonathan. You see it in Ruth and Naomi. Wherever you go, I'm going to go. It says she clung to uh, her mother-in-law. It's the bonding agent of friendship, commitment, covenant, stickiness. This idea that a friend could be closer than a brother was revolutionary in the ancient world, right? Because the traditional family unit was everything. And yet what the Bible says is that there is a friendship that can be closer to you than a blood relationship. Because think about it, your family has to care about you because there's all these memories and there's history and it's just like, eh, it's just easier to deal with you than it is to cut you off in most cases. But like a true friend, 
Like there's something deeper and more meaningful about that because there's a shared commitment to the other's good that's born out of choice. I am choosing to be your friend. I am choosing to care about you, which, which is kind of the soil for rich and lasting and permanent relationship. And so here's the thing. What I just want to kind of close with in our time together, um, again, we're cast in vision, and we're going to come back to this again uh, over the next couple weeks. But I want us to ask this question um, of ourselves before we ask this of other people. There is a friend who sticks closer than brother. Okay, immediately you're going to come to me and say, okay, find me that friend. Can you connect me? Can you set me up for coffee? Where's that person out there that's the friend that sticks closer than a brother? I want to put this back on you and challenge you. What could it look like for you to become this kind of friend for other people? Rather than expecting other people to do this for me, what if I actually became the kind of person who embodied this and made this kind of friendship possible for other people? What if instead of demanding this from others, I became this for others? What if instead of trying to receive this from my community, I look to give this to my community, to my missional community, to my discipleship relationships, to my marriage, to my single friends and roommates, to my business partners, to my company? What if I tried to become, by, with God's help, the kind of friend who sticks closer than a brother? What would have to change for us to shift and to move from being a person of scattered companions to a person who was the bonding agent that enabled sticky friendships to pop up everywhere in this community? There's, uh, let me just give you the shifts, and then again, we'll, we'll kind of come back to these. Oh, we have the screen up. Okay, let me give you these shifts, and I'll give you verses, and then we'll close. Uh, I see at least five shifts that need to happen for us, um, and we'll list these off. The first shift is the shift from autonomy or freedom to stability, and we kind of referenced this already. From autonomy, um, I don't want to be limited. I don't want anybody infringing on my freedom to just acknowledging like all good friendship requires a ton of limitation, right? It requires me to not do some things in order to show up and to be there in other things, right? So Proverbs 27.10, we have it on the screen here. Proverbs 27.10, do not forsake, oh, we had it, do not forsake uh, your friend or your father's friend. I am making a choice to not forsake you, to be there for you, to keep showing up, to make a commitment to you, not just to be here when it's convenient for me, but to make a commitment. The ancients used to talk about this in terms of vows of stability, like the monks and the monastics and people who really got friendship in a lot of ways would make vows of stability. And they would say, for the next two years or the next five years or the next 10 years, I'm not going anywhere apart from an act of God. Unless God himself tells me so, I am staying here. I'm going to be stability. Instead of looking for stability out there somewhere where it's not coming, what if I vowed to be the very stability that others around me need? It's about staying. It's about embracing good limitations, the kind of limitations that enable others to flourish. From autonomy to stability, from connectivity to selectivity, right? Connectivity, like I've got to be friends with all these people and have all these friends and and constantly be staying on and texting everybody um, to like, I've got to be selective and have a few good friends to have a shot at true friendship. I can't be on for everyone. I can't feel guilty. I mean, this is my wife. Like, I love my wife. She is so nice. 
but like being in a, in a large, relatively large church um, is really hard for her because she gets bombarded by just well-intended requests. And like, don't leave here and go, like, I'm not going to talk to you. She needs friends too, okay? Um, but like, she gets bombarded by requests and just always feels this sense of kind of false guilt and shame, like I'm not doing enough to connect with people. And so I call them like, she, it's like friend fishing or like connecting. She'll just like send out like 20 text messages at night. She'll get in bed, exhausted from the day with the kids, and she'll lay down. If you know my wife and she has your phone number, you probably get a text between 10 and 12 at night from her, okay? And it's just like, hey, how are you doing? I'm feeling disconnected. Are you doing okay? I just want to check in on you. And I'm like, you're fishing, and you're going to get those fish. They're going to come back to you, and there's going to be expectations. And so, like, think about this. Jesus had the many in the crowds, but he also had the few and those, those whom he chose. He had concentric circles of friendships. Even Jesus himself couldn't be friends with everyone. Couldn't heal everyone. Couldn't be everywhere. Couldn't do everything. I mean, God himself chose to limit himself to a community primarily of three, Peter, James, and John. And then even within that, he had John, his beloved disciples. The more you try to be connected, the less possibility you have to go deep with a few people over a long period of time. It's worth thinking about, right? And that's the heart of this passage. The man of many companions is about to be shattered because the fabric's thin. And when adversity comes into your life, it can be ripped very easily. But there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother, there's a selectivity to, to open up my life to just a select few. I don't have to be, and again, there's a lot of pressure to be transparent with everyone. You shouldn't be. You should be very selective with who you open your heart to and who you give your soul to. That is a principle in the Bible that we need to recover. Thirdly, from suspicion to trust. Many of us are very suspicious people, and we have a hard time with friendship because we isolate ourselves through suspicion and cynicism. And, and honestly, for good reasons, we've been hurt before. And we don't want to put ourselves out there. We don't want to be vulnerable. But man, like, that's going to harm you over the course of your life. That is going to isolate you uh, if you can't learn to be an open and trusting person. Proverbs 20, 5 through 6 says this, The purpose in a man's heart is like deep water, but a man of understanding will draw it out. Many a man proclaims his own steadfast love but a faithful man who can find. Lots of people are saying, I'll be your friend. I'm a great friend. I want to be your friend. Let me in, you know? There's lots of people declaring their own steadfast love, but a faithful friend who can find, right? Somebody who is safe, somebody who is vulnerable. Like good friendship, Hugh Black says, is a gradual unveiling of the self to another. It is about mutual disclosure over long periods of time. It requires openness, not being closed off and cynical. It requires us to be curious about instead of just always vomiting on you what's happening in my life. I have to actually stop and pay attention and think about what questions am I going to ask you. I can't be that kind of safe friend if I'm a wounded friend who's so hurt that I just need to kind of get things off my chest. And we all know we have friends like that. Every time you show up, it is just like, there's just like, they just swallow up all the oxygen in the room. Vulnerability, trustworthiness. A good friend sees the best in another person and calls it out and tries to make the other person the best version of themselves in Christ. From suspicion to trust. From idealism to realism, right? From idealism to realism. Proverbs 17, 
17. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Uh, Idealism is, I have a projection of you in my mind that I need you to be for me. I need you to be this. I need you to be that. We have an ideal in our head, often born out of our own longings, but our own wounds. And then we walk into a community. Dietrich Bonhoeffer called this the wish dream. We walk into the community, and we lay that template down on the community, and it becomes oppressive because nobody can ever live up to my expectations. And so what happens? I find myself chronically moving from church to church to church because these people just don't get me. These people don't do community. Really? Like 20 churches in Indianapolis don't get community? Like, could it be, I'm just asking, maybe our expectations are unrealistic? One author said, what we're often looking looking for in community is not community, but a lover. And the church will never be that. The idealism has to give way to realism, that I accept friends as they are, that I love them at all times and all seasons for who they are and who they can become, not for what I need them to be out of some some sense of need or dependence or deficiency inside of me. I need them to be as they are, and then I need to love them just as they are. A friend loves at all times, in all seasons. Finally, from consuming to giving. From consuming to giving, I need this to what do you need? How can I serve you? How can I love you? Proverbs 11, I was meditating on, on this in a day of silence a couple weeks ago. I was so convicted in my own life about uh, I'm, I'm kind of the over-detached friend. I'm the one that's a little bit more clinical and withholding in my friendships. And I was reading this in Proverbs 11. Here's what he says. One gives freely yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give, including love and friendship, I would argue, and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. The people curse him who holds back grain, but a blessing is on the head of him who sells it. Instead of being a consumer who needs and who withholds what I want unless you give me what I want and what I need, we move out with a benevolence of heart and spirit, saying it's not about me. It's not about me. I have needs, but those needs are going to be met, actually, ironically, as I serve you, as I love you. We actually have the possibility of becoming friends. And it's not the big things in life. It's, we're all kind of sitting around waiting for like some big opportunity to show our heroism and demonstrate our heroism to other people. It is the small acts of helpfulness and kindness accumulated over days and weeks and months, right? It's a card. It's a handwritten note. It's flowers. It's just these little acts of attentiveness that say, hey, I see you. I see you. I love you. I'm here for you. And it's very specific and particular. It's about service. It's about love. It's about self-sacrifice. That is the only way we become spiritual friends. And by the way, the only way this is possible for us is to see that like this passage right here, Proverbs 18, 24, and this movement from autonomy to stability, from connectivity to selectivity, from suspicion to trust, from idealism to realism, from consuming to giving, all of these characteristics and the things that God is calling us to become, to promise to be for one another instead of demanding from one another in the church, the friend who sticks closer than a brother, guess who is the ultimate fulfillment of all of these things? Jesus. 
That's why we need his power for these things to be possible. Jesus is the friend who sticks closer than a brother, right? He is the fulfillment of Proverbs. He is the one that makes this possible. Jesus committed himself to this group of friends, and he said, I'm going to lay down my life for you. I'm going to give away what is rightfully mine so that it can open up the possibility for spiritual friendship to take place. He didn't run at the cross. He stayed at the cross, and he died and gave up his life for his friends. He was trustworthy. He was a faithful friend. He dealt with people as they were. I mean, think about Peter. My goodness, like over and over and again, Jesus deals with him as he is, and he continues to invite him into a relationship. All the people who abandon him, he gathers back together on the other side of the cross and says, I still believe in you. I'm going to build my church on you, the very ones who betrayed him. Man, that's the power for friendship. Friendship with Jesus. That's why Jesus is so radical when he says in John 15, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. His friendship is what makes possible friendship with others. It's what allows us to experience true transformation as I see Jesus and I look to him to be my friend and as he befriends me and I relearn what it looks like to be, in a sense, reparented, refamilied by Jesus as our true older brother who gave his life for us. Now I learn what it looks like to enter back into my family, my relationships, into the church with the power of God flowing through me. Having healed those things that need to be healed so that I can be an agent of healing for other people. That's the vision of a spiritual community of friends. So I'll I'll close with that. We'll go to communion. Every week we practice communion as friends of God. We're invited to be friends with God. God takes enemies and sinners like us, and he calls us friends. He makes us holy and righteous. He heals us of all of our compulsivities and insecurities and doubts and fears. He takes those things into his body, and then he shares his communion with us. 